look at. And they all kind of fit together. They build on each other. Uh, God's deliberate delays, his deliberate delays, are greater displays. That'll be the second thing we look at. How does God's deliberate delays in your life and in my life and in Lazarus' life actually lead to a greater, more intimate display? And then the last thing, of who he is. God's deliberate delays are greater displays of who he is. Let me read this passage. It's another long one. It's not my fault. John wrote a long chapter, but it's a beautiful story. So read along with me. Try to absorb the details so you can leave with confidence this is coming from your Bible, from God, and not just stuff I made up. This is the word of God. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent, sent a messenger to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Mary, or Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. But the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover, he'll wake up. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him or be with him as he dies. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, is about two miles off, and so many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she'd said this, she went and she got her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. 
Now Jesus hadn't even come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise up and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell. She fell at his feet. And she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept Lazarus from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away that stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's an odor, for he's been there for four days. Jesus said to her, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always heard and hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There's a guy named Ernest Becker who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book back in the early 70s. He's not a Christian, it's not a Christian book, but it was called, the book's title was called The Denial of Death. And he wrote in the preface to his book this line, the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It's the mainspring of human activity. It's the catalyst of everything we do. Activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death and to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. What he's saying is that the fear of death, your death or the death of people you love, has a power over us, right? It has a grip over us and it, it lives somewhere inside of us, the forefront of your mind maybe, the back of your mind, intrudes in nightmares, in dreams, in fears you have. And I think this fear of death is with you from your first conscious moments in life all the way literally up to the moments of your death. When I was a little kid, I remember um, my parents about once a month maybe would go out to dinner together and they'd go out for like a few hours. And I remember standing at the top of the staircase right outside my bedroom. The babysitter would have been with us and she'd put us to bed and I would slide back out of bed without anyone knowing I was up. And I would stand at that window that overlooked the driveway watching the cars go by on the street. And I remember vividly what I was always thinking. When is their car gonna pull back in? Are they gonna come back? Are they gonna get in an accident? Are they never gonna come back? And every single time I saw those headlights in that car pull back in the driveway, I'd run back to my bed all at peace. They're alive. 
it's interesting. Now I'm on the other side of that equation. If you're a parent one day, your attitude towards death will radically change. Parents think about death every waking hour. Now Anna and I are the ones who go out on date nights. We're doing another one tomorrow night. Some of y'all are our babysitters when we leave, and yeah, we have a good time, we enjoy it, but every time we leave town or leave the house, we're always wondering, is someone gonna choke on a toy? Got four kids and they're crazy, so is one of them gonna kinda slide out? Noah loves to play by the front of the driveway. Is he gonna take one step too far with someone texting? That's what we always think about. This fear of death, yours or somebody else's, lingers somewhere in your mind and in your heart from your earliest conscious moments to literally your last few minutes. Now listen, this is a distant fear or reality for some of you, and it's a agonizing personal reality for others of you. And in this room, in this family, in this community, in these past few years, some of you are the ones who've lost your mom or your dad to the battle with cancer that drug on forever that they did not win. Some of you are the ones who had friends of yours take their lives in high school, and you still feel the dark cloud of that over you and on you. Some of you have lost siblings, moms, dads, best friends to tragic accidents, and you picked up the phone in a conversation you'll never be able to forget. One author said that whether this is something that has personally hit you like a freight train yet or not, he said there will be a lot of death in your future, especially if you live a long and healthy life, because the older you grow, the more you'll lose all of those you've loved. And he says if there hasn't yet come a moment where you've lost that person, that moment will come or it will come, or your loved ones will lose us. Look, I think we have to talk about this before we get back to John chapter 11. Because of what Beckner wrote, the fear of death haunts us, and so we try to avoid the fatality of it, denying that that is indeed where all of our lives are going, and the lives of everyone we love. Uh, we are largely insulated from death. It, it, do you not find it amazing that we're in a moment where literally every time you turn on the news, there is a death toll count for COVID. A thousand people a day in our country die. And it's just background noise now. It is for me, it probably is for you too, right? It's just, we're numb to it now. And that doesn't include all the other people who've lost their lives from things that people used to lose their lives from before the pandemic. We take dying people and we put them away in hospice care. We're, we're largely insulated from the horror of death. And so we have to lift our chin and look at it and see it a little bit more for what it is before we can hear what Jesus is doing here and what he's saying here. Jesus's age did not have the luxuries that you and I have. Families lived together and they stayed together unless people got married. And so Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, their whole life happened in their living room or in their fields of the family in Bethany. So Mary and Martha would have cared for Lazarus as he was dying. They would have hit that point where they're talking to each other in the other room out of earshot. Is this getting worse or better? I think it's getting worse. There's no 911. There's no internet to check symptoms and say, should I be concerned? There's no doctor. 
it's the two of them and their dying brother. And they're beginning to panic as he moans through the night as his breath grows shallower and shallower. And they didn't have any of the things that we have, all the resources that we can immediately run to. So in the absence of all of those tools, they run to one that they know can and will help, Jesus. Here's something that we need to know about Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus before we get into the story. They weren't just acquaintances and they weren't just friends. They were a squad, literally. They, they knew each other so well. This is the same Mary and Martha where he's like, Martha, Martha, you know, your sister's chosen the better portion sitting with me. She's always, always busy in the kitchen when he came over. This is the same Mary, John says, who anointed Jesus' feet soon after this. Uh, these are best friends of his. Uh, everywhere one of them was, the others were there with them. They knew each other well. That's who these people are. And that's why, uh, verse 3, when the messenger comes and tells Jesus about Lazarus, he doesn't say Lazarus is sick. He says, the one you love. Everybody in the village would know that's the one Jesus loves. In other words, best friends. In other words, Jesus could see the look on their face and say, what happened? Is it Lazarus? They were that close. That is this crew. That is this friend group. This is not a distant uncle. This is the one Jesus loves. And that is why this is such a jarring account. That's specifically why this is such a confusing account. The way John even words it, verse 5, he wants you to know, now, Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he delayed. <laughs> Wait, what? Why did you say so? Because he loved them, he delayed two days after he heard that. If they're so tight, why doesn't Jesus drop everything and race to Bethany to help? When Jesus finally arrives on the scene, talk about a, a first responder. He's four days after Lazarus died. So he's probably a week after the messenger came. If the messenger came and told him Lazarus is sick, we don't know if he's going to make it, and said that on a Monday, this is probably like a Saturday, a Sunday, or the following Monday when Jesus shows up. It's so late into the game, all of the mourners in Jerusalem that would have known this family, they've already come. We're that far into this horror that Jesus arrives on the scene. And the question that his delay has left in everybody's mind is one that's very familiar to you and I. Where's Jesus? Where is he? Certainly Mary and Martha were asking that question by this point for days. It has less of an edge after their brother died, less of, a freak, less of a fervency. But even Lazarus must have been asking this question as he died. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Everybody's asking, where are you, Lord? It's a question that effortlessly pops into our mind, too, when God seems to delay in a very important situation or a painful situation where really there's a lot on the line, not just to you, but legitimately there's a lot on the line. And doesn't the where are you Jesus question quickly morph into, do you even love me? Do you even care? Isn't that almost like the next bullet in the chamber after the where are you? Do you even love me? Do you even care about what I'm going through? Do you even care for me? But John, 
wants to nip that in the bud early on. Early on in this story, John is kind of telling us as a narrator, you've got to know, you've got to know something about Jesus and these friends. He loved them. These were his people. Of all the people that he loved, he he especially was close to these people. And I want to pause there for just a second and bring you into this account. Can we do a little thought experiment together? Could you imagine if there was a record written of some situation that you're in that you think God is delaying, he's, he's late, he's missed the boat, this ship is sailing and he's not here to get on and help. I don't know if he's not answering my prayers, I don't know what he's doing, but he's not here. And here is where I need him. Now is when I need him. Can you imagine a moment if someone like typed up a record of what's happening between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your God, in this situation that you're in right now. And if that record said something like, throw out a few names, you insert your name, Ben, Anna, John, the one, the one whom you love is troubled, Jesus. Maybe the Father saying to Jesus, Jesus, the one you love, and he's talking about you. The one that you love is confused. And then, like in verse 5, it says, or that record would say in a parenthesis, now one thing you got to understand is Jesus loves a Trevor, Elijah. Jesus loves Ella. And you came across this account. You wouldn't have to get too many other answers to immediately be on a whole other trajectory of, okay, I'll listen a little longer about where he is. We would not expect to see that account written of us, right? Lazarus is dead as a doornail in a tomb. He doesn't know what's being said about him. The way that Jesus is responding to him miles and miles away. But I want to ask you before we move on, can you imagine that? That Jesus would talk about you that way, even as you think he's AWOL, absent, nowhere helpful, given your current situation. How uh, they know that Jesus loves them. It's why they're so confused. They know that he loves them. They're not doubting that. But how Jesus is loving them at the moment isn't making any sense. Love isn't a binary thing like a light switch. They either love you or they don't love you. God loves you or he doesn't love you. How he loves you is a critical thing. Love is dynamic. It's multidimensional. It's agile. It's evolving. It's adaptive. It's custom-fitted. It's always on the move, always changing to what the moment needs and what you need, which means love is often a confusing thing to interpret, right? We know this even at a child-parent relationship or you and your friend's relationship. Can't someone love you, but it seems like hurt? It seems not helpful in the moment, but later it turns out to be helpful. They knew Jesus loved them, but how he was loving them was not making any sense. Jesus, apparently his ways and his thoughts are different than our ways and our thoughts. Apparently they are higher than us, bigger than our thoughts and our perceptions of what he's doing in our lives, just like Isaiah says. But let's get back to the heart of the matter. Whether it's with Lazarus or us, where do Jesus' deliberate delays in our lives spring from? From what kind of a place? Indifference can't be. We already established that. 
It can't be. You can't take the Bible for what it is. You can't listen to Jesus and at the same time say, he's indifferent about me. Or if you don't even know him, friends, if you don't know Jesus, you're here out of curiosity, you're here for the friendships, whatever reason you're here, you don't know him. You, if you take him at his word, if you believe anything that's come out of his mouth, you must know he's not indifferent about you either. He has skin in the game even with your life. Like I've said, they know that he's not indifferent. We've got to do the mental battle. We've got to do the emotional battle inside of ourselves to push back against those doubts and to not let our doubts now become scripture that tells us what God is like. But to begin asking hard questions of those doubts and to say, where did you come from? Who says that's the truth? He said he's this way. He said he loves me. And I have about 10,000 people in scripture to look at just like me that he has loved. We know his deliberate delays in your life cannot spring from a place of indifference towards you. It can't be. Well, what about ignorance? Have you ever been in a place where you're like, God, come on, don't you know the situation I'm in? Don't you know what's going to happen if this doesn't happen next week? <laughs> if I don't get into Terry this year, if I don't get the internship next summer, don't you know what's going to happen if my mom doesn't get approved for the medical trial? Don't you know what that consigns her to? And we have this feeling inside of us or this question that maybe it's ignorance that's leading to God's delay in your life. He doesn't know the details of what you're going through. But we know from this account it can't be ignorance either. Jesus, unlike his disciples, knows exactly what's going on with Lazarus, even though his disciples don't. They're like, he's just sleeping, he'll get better. And Jesus is the one who tells them, Lazarus, our friend, is dead. So it can't be indifference, it can't be ignorance. Could it be that he just doesn't want to get involved? Could it be that death is dark and it's stinky and it's nasty and it's, it's, it's intimidating and overwhelming and he doesn't want to be a part of it? Could it be that? And that's the reason why he stays away? Could it be that it was too dangerous to go to Bethany because his disciples said, you know they're going to kill you. You can't go back to that neighborhood. They tried to kill you last time you were there. What do you think is going to happen this time? Well, we know it can't be that he doesn't want to get involved. We know it can't be that. And the reason how we know that is two days later, he marches straight into Bethany. And just as his disciples predicted, it led eventually to his murder. So it can't be indifference. It can't be ignorance. It can't be that God doesn't want to get involved in the messy details of your life. So then what explains God's deliberate delays in your situation, in your life, especially if it's of high caliber like death. Could it be love? Yes, but thankfully we have something much more specific than just generic love. Verse four, Jesus says this, and he says it three separate times in this account. Verse four, Jesus says, my delay is deliberate. There's a reason for it, and he tells us. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 15, he says, it's for your sake, and I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus was still alive, so that you may believe. On the backside of your page, verse 41, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he prays to the Father, and he prays out loud, so that, so that, verse 42, um, the people standing around might believe that you have sent me. 
It's a little bit confusing. We're going to pick that apart for just a few minutes, but hear this, hopefully clearly, up front. God's response time in your life is strategically calculated to do you the most good. God's response time in your situations is strategically calculated to do you the most good, to bring you the maximum blessing long-term. God is a God who plays nine innings of baseball. He's not a God who tries to hit the grand slam every pitch. Those batters strike out every at-bat. He has a view for how this at-bat, this pitch, fits in to a three-hour game. Not to say that our lives are a game, but he sees how the little fits into the big, the really big story that we are caught up in. God's deliberate delays are calculated to do you good. This can't be good news for you if you think, intentionally or accidentally, that Jesus' purpose for existence, though he's the eternal one, he's always been, if you think that he exists to put out whatever daily fires are burning in your life, to patch whatever painful potholes pop up, if, you, if God is your errand boy, who pops into your life whenever hard stuff happens to just nip it in the bud and put you back on the straight, beautiful road to the American dream, you're not going to be able to hear anything I'm saying. It's going to make you mad. Jesus is going to make you angry, and you may even be like at the end of this, at the end of this passage where it says, some of them said, look how he loved him, and the arrest in the crowd said, who is this guy? If he'd loved him, if he could open a blind man's eyes, why can't he do this? You're going to get angry if you think Jesus exists simply to put out the day's fires and to get us back on track to this efficient American dream of a painless life. But if you can entertain the possibility that God maybe, just maybe, is up to something bigger, something bigger than you and I are able to grasp, then you're going to find a lot of encouragement and hope in this, a life-sustaining hope in these things. So what is the greater good that Jesus delivers as a result of these delays? This is how the points come together. Deliberate delays lead to greater displays of who he really is. The places in your life where you're waiting on God, whether it's in singleness, whether it's in chronic pain, whether it's in suicidal thoughts, whether it's in a parent's marriage, whether it's in your own personal struggles, the places you're waiting on God and you're wondering, I've sent word to Jesus, where is he? Those are places where Jesus is bringing a greater display of who he actually is and who he is for you. If Jesus had done what Lazarus, Mary, and Martha had wanted him desperately to do in that moment, all that they would have seen Jesus do is bring a temporary healing from a sickness that they didn't know was leading to death. It would have been a visit to the urgent care. That's what would have happened had Jesus done what they asked in that moment. They would have seen Jesus as this big of a savior and had this much confidence and this much security and this much hope, this much durability for the pains of life. But Jesus, through this deliberate delay, is giving a greater display of who he is. He's saying, I'm not physician to heal. I am resurrection 
to give permanent, indestructible, invulnerable life to my people. And friends, that is a realization, it's a revelation that you cannot experience outside of a dark place like death. There are some stars that you can only see in darkness. And for you to have unshakable confidence in Jesus, you must see him as he is and believe in him. And Jesus knows what we need to see of him and is so kind to show us. So this is hard to imagine in practice, but this week I've sat across the table as some of you have sat there and told me, I asked you in your story, hearing your story, why did you come to Jesus? Why him? I see nothing in your past that would lead me to believe that was the obvious choice for you. And you would say to me with tears welling up in your eyes, because I suffered. Because I finally realized I had no other hope. I tried everything. And I finally found hope and life in him. I've talked to some of you this week, and you've said, the reason I've grown the way I've grown this fall is because of how terrible this summer was. You are the way you are, and you see Jesus in dimensions you never thought possible only because the lights went out and you were in the darkness and there's an entire galaxy that you see now that you didn't know existed before. So through these strategic and tender-hearted delays, Jesus is showing greater displays. So what is he displaying in particular? What? What specifically is he displaying to his people, to Lazarus, Mary, Martha, us, in these delays, Um, his heart, his character. I want you to hear this. What we're talking about right now is very different than what Jesus was talking about with the people in this account. Jesus did not preach a sermon to them about death and pain and suffering. He didn't. Jesus's response to these people was very different. He does not peddle in cliches. I know we mean it well when we say to grieving people who've just lost the one they love more than anybody, it's okay, you're going to see them again. Don't you know they're going to be raised up with Jesus? Don't you know they're in a better place? We mean well, but the person hears that as crushing because it minimizes how precious that person was. And it diminishes the legitimacy of their grieving and the horror of death. Jesus doesn't say, Mary, Mary, don't you know that he'll be raised up on the last day? Trust in God, Mary, don't grieve, have hope. None of it. What he does is he has a custom-adapted response to each of these beloved friends of his. Martha comes in hot. Martha comes in, where were you? You knew he would die if you weren't here. Where were you? And so Jesus responds to her anger, and he says, Martha, and he talks to her. Mary's not like Martha. Mary's kind of the tender-hearted one. Mary hears Jesus is coming to town, verse 33. She simply sees Jesus, and she grabs him, and she falls down. And through sobs, she says, where have you been? Where have you been? 
Jesus doesn't say a word to Mary. Jesus falls down. He loses it. He comes apart. He breaks down. He weeps. No lesson, no lecture, no reminding her of some verse that she knew in the Bible. He falls down on the ground with her, and he weeps with those who are weeping. At this point, Martha and Mary still don't fully understand why this Jesus, who now is weeping with them, heaving for air in between his sobs, why he let this happen, but they do know that he's got skin in the game with their pain. This is what faith looks like in these moments. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we trust his heart. They can't trace his hand, why? So they trust his heart. All of this also means that your God, that Jesus can empathize with your pain and your agony because he's felt it himself. This is his friend. This is his friend. Jeff Thompson is the RUF International Campus Minister here. He's an amazing guy. He told a story one time of him talking to one of his Hindu students who, was, who had just gotten the news that his father, who lived all the way back in uh, India, had uh, heard the news that there's nothing else the doctors can do. And Jeff said, I'll pray to Jesus, who is resurrection, for your dad, and I'll pray that for you as well. And he said, and if you know Jeff, this was tender, not like a gotcha moment, but Jeff said, hey, can I ask you a question? What is it like to pray to gods who can't empathize with your pain and your agony because they've never experienced a minute of it? What is it like to pray to a God who has no idea what you're going through? The Christian never prays to a God who has no idea what they're going through. You only pray to one who's been through it all and deeper and fuller. Jesus' grief morphs into something else. This is a gentle translation down in verse 33 where it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then in verse 38, deeply moved again. What that means, it's literally, it's a metaphorical term in Greek that's describing what horses do when they're angry and rearing up and snorting like a stallion. That's the term used to describe where Jesus' grief went. It's not just sadness. He gets angry. He is beginning to rage when he turns his face from Mary to the tomb. Jesus is in beast mode at this point as he walks towards this grave, and he says, get the rock out of there. And he shakes with anger as he looks at this. And you think sadness makes sense. Empathy makes sense. Violence? Anger? Rage? How do these make sense in this particular moment? If he's the creator, how is he angry at something that's in his creation? The reason he's angry at death is because he didn't make it. It's not his. It's an intruder. It doesn't belong here. We don't have time to go into this, but our particular cultural moment would have you believe the Lion King theology. Death is just part of the cycle of life. And can we just say, what the heck are you talking about? It's the end of the cycle of life. Don't put euphemisms on this to try to make me feel better that the tree gets to live because I'm in the ground next to it. 
Death is supposed to piss you off. It's supposed to leave you unequipped to handle it. You never were given the tools to handle death. It's not normal. It's not supposed to be here. God hates it. And he has bent all of history around conquering it and vanquishing it and getting rid of it forever. That's why Jesus is so angry. He sees what this has done to his friend, Mary, Martha, the family, the mourners gathered, you, me, and him. Jesus is not a protester in the street who can be angry, who can yell, but doesn't have the power to topple the whole system. Jesus is God. He is life. He is resurrection. And though he was, quote-unquote, late in this moment, he was right on time because of what he was going to do next. As he says to Lazarus, rise up. The last thing we'll be brief on, Jesus' deliberate delays lead to greater displays of who he is. Watchman Nee was a leader in the Chinese church 100 years ago. And he said, God will answer all of our questions in one way and one way only, namely by showing us more of Jesus. Jesus is how God answers the philosophical questions. He shows you more of Jesus. He reveals more of Jesus. Jesus who is life, who is resurrection, and his unprecedented power. What do I mean by unprecedented? Death is the last place you and I would ever look for hope, right? A graveyard is the last place you would ever go looking for resurrection, right? It's the last place you would ever go looking for a solution to death, and that's exactly where it comes from. Jesus says to Martha, not, yeah, one day people will rise up again. He says, I am resurrection, Martha. And resurrection is here on the scene. Jesus says Lazarus come out and makes a mockery of death that had made a mockery of Lazarus. Lazarus. With one with one or two words, he says, get up. And it's conquered. Charles Wesley wrote about this mockery when he said, lives again our glorious king, where, O death, is now thy sting. Love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids his rise. Christ has opened paradise. Nathan is preaching next week on Jesus' resurrection, and he's going to tie up a lot of the loose ends that come in this passage. So come back to hear the resolution of all this, but what you will not see on your page, because it wasn't printed there, is that this resurrection of Lazarus is what broke, it's the straw that broke the camel's back with the Jews in Jerusalem. This is what led them walking back to Jerusalem saying, we have to kill him. We have to shut this down. Jesus knows that for Lazarus and for you, to bring you out of a grave absolutely consigns him to a grave. To raise you up absolutely lowers him down into the grave. You'll see it more next week in John 20 with what Nathan talks about. But that's the calculus of the gospel. Jesus knows the only way this works is if I go to Bethany. He doesn't go around as a magician saying, you rise and you rise and you rise. He dies for his people because the wages of sin is death. It is a curse. And he takes that upon himself. And because he is not guilty, because he is innocent, he rises up again. And he says, if you believe in me, 
if you take me at my word, then you too will live forever. Not live better, not live longer, you'll live. And you will be the one who mocks death with your foot on its chest. Friends, I'm going to ask you the question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Jesus, it's a long passage, a lot to talk about here, so much more that we didn't get to, but I pray you'll continue to preach this life to us, preach this to us. We pray, bring life in our places where we are waiting on you, where we feel like there's a deliberate delay, would there be a greater display of who you really are, of unprecedented power, unprecedented glory, unprecedented beauty. We ask this in your name, amen.